This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to CXMH. My name is Dr. Holly Oxhandler, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Robert Bohr. Hey, Robert. Hey, Holly. <laughs> On today's episode, we talk with Brandon Johnson about why talking specifically about black mental health is important, the roles that the black church can play, and how a public health lens can help. But first, Robert, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I, I'm doing well. It's a, I know we were just chatting. It's kind of a normal week. I don't have anything super exciting to uh, report, but sometimes that's good, you know, maybe just a Nice calmish week is is nice sometimes, kind of amidst lots of things. Although I know it's it has been not a super normal week for you, uh, launching <laughs> the book and everything. But uh, yeah, so how 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 are you doing on the back end of book launch? Ooh. Yeah. Well, first, I'm just so glad that you are having what sounds like a pretty peaceful week. That is good. Or <laughs> celebrating the the idea of a, that uh, for you this week. Um, but yeah, I I'm doing great. It feels so good to be on the other side of the launch of the Soul of the Helper, and you know, it's it's really really great to see it you know, getting out into the world, seeing endorsers with photos and friends and loved ones sharing it. And, um, you know, and then I have seen like photos of folks, you know, downloading the the digital copies like overseas and, you know, seeing the, yeah. the you know, the book sitting next to like a latte or something. And just that <laughs> is so, <laughs> it is Oh, so wild. And it is so humbling. Um, it's really been a gift this week. So yeah. anyways, yeah, thanks for asking. I know we had a chance this last, you know, well, when we're recording this, it was a couple of days ago that we got to do a fun um, Instagram live that our listeners can go check out so you can actually see Robert and I talking to each other instead of just like hearing us. Mm-hmm. Um so that was super fun. And um, I mean, that's been one of my my sweet little highlights this week and lots of sweet little moments with my family. We had a, a, a book launch event last night at our local bookstore, and that was so, so well attended. And I had family come in to celebrate, and it's just been good. Like, it's just, you know... I feel like the heart of this book is how I'm experiencing it moving out into the world. And that feels really, really good. So, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, one, I, can I share one fun thing though this week? Of course. Yeah. In addition to those other fun things that I just mentioned. Um, of course. So on on Monday, the day of the release, um, when Callie came home from school, she like I was working on something and she was like, oh, I'm going to go read a book or whatever. And then later she came in and she was like, hey, can I paint a picture? And I was like, yeah, of, of course. Sure. You can paint a picture. And 
cup like an hour later, you know, she comes out and has this beautiful picture that she painted of the book. Wow. Like how wild is that? Yeah. Um, just this really, really sweet, sweet depiction of what she's like seeing of it. And like, I don't know, it just has been really, really sweet with like yeah. lots of these little sacred moments. So anyways. that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did have a question for you uh, mm-hmm. for, you know, kind of a segue here. Um, I'm curious. So are, do you know of any famous people from where you were born? Like the same city or or where you grew up. I mean, obviously you live in Waco now, so there's you know obviously there's some some Plenty famous folks out from here. there. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. aside from maybe the obvious Waco ones, I didn't know if there were any famous people from where you grew up or anything. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so like yeah. the first thing that I had thought of was, um, I mean, it, he's not from where I grew up, but Matt Carney has a song called Rochester. And it's really sweet listening to that song because it reminds me of some of the the different threads and some of the lines talk about, you know, areas or different places within the Rochester area that I am very familiar with. So, like, that was the first thing that came to mind, and, and it's yeah. his dad who grew up there. But hmm. uh, the next person was um, Abby Wambach. She, hmm. uh, yeah, the soccer player, she yeah. um, is from Rochester, and there are a number of um, connections with her that it, you know have been really neat over the years to to kind of know about. And yeah. Um, yeah, she would be the the person that I think would I'd most elevate. So that's awesome. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I was uh, looking at. So if I go from where I grew up, right? Even I'm going to go high school because that's kind of as far back as I can remember, right? But so from the same high school that I went to, there's been a couple, a lot of sports players, stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe uh, currently most interesting is Michael Waldron, who uh, he was the writer of the Loki series and he's the writer yes. of the new Doctor Strange movie that is coming out <gasps> soon. So he wrote both of those. So he went oh to high gosh. school uh, and we overlapped by a year. So I have no oh. idea who he is. I have no, couldn't tell you, I, I, who knows? I mean, if I ever saw him, who knows? Um, but, you know, I know that we overlapped by one year there. So uh, that's kind of interesting, at least. That is so, so cool. I love yeah. that. That is so interesting to me. Yeah. Oh, man, I love that. Yeah. I wish I knew more that like for both of us. I'm like, I know so, it's always hard, and then you like learn about someone later down the road that you're like, oh wow, really? But yeah, yeah, it's so fascinating. Much like the here's our segue, right? Yeah. Um, so we talk about this with Brandon, but he uh, lives in Baltimore, and uh, Baltimore, Columbia, that area is actually mm-hmm. where I was born. Mm-hmm. I won't say that's where I grew up because we moved when I was two, but that's where I was born. Um, so I, you know, I thought that was a, a fun connection. I you know, have gone up there my whole life to visit family and things like that. So um, mm-hmm. semi-familiar with kind of that area in my head. Somebody's going to, somebody's like yelling at their podcast player now, like Baltimore and Columbia are two different things, which I know, but they yeah. kind of go together in my head in terms of you know, uh-huh. we family sprinkled throughout. So yeah, so that was, that was fun to kind of see that connection there. And then obviously have, have a great chat with Brandon and all the good work he's doing. I know yes. he's someone that, um, both of us have have respected for a, a mm-hmm. years, and uh, I know we've wanted to have him on, so it was great to to make that happen. Yeah. All right. Enjoy our conversation with Brandon Johnson. All right. Enjoy, y'all. 
Today, we are so excited to be joined by Brandon Johnson. I'm going to take a big breath because your bio is slam-packed here. Brandon Johnson <laughs> is a tireless advocate for positive mental health and suicide prevention services for youth and adults across the country and within the local community of Baltimore, Maryland, which, by the way, is where I was born. So there you go. Um, Love it. Yeah. Uh, Currently, he serves as a public health advisor at the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, which I know Holly has mentioned before, in the suicide prevention branch at the United States Department of Health and Human Services. In this role, Brandon serves as a government project officer for various suicide prevention grant programs that target youth, adults, and healthcare systems. Uh, He's a subject matter expert in suicide prevention with a particular focus on suicide prevention planning and suicide prevention strategies for black youth. He's also the creator of the Black Mental Wellness Lounge, a YouTube channel dedicated to discussing black mental health and healing. We could go on and on about all the things that you do, Brandon, but uh, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I am fantastic, and I'm. I didn't know you were reading that. If I would, I would have gave you a shorter one. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> about that. But, no, that's all right. No, but also, I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, no, we're so so happy to have you here too. Is there anything else that our audience should know about you that wasn't in that little bit there that that you want to share? Um, I am a husband and a father of uh, two fantastic little ones, Nicholas and Anastasia. So Nick is 10 and Anastasia is eight. And they are, um, you know, also what keeps me busy <laughs> when I'm not doing this work also. So, um, yeah, I mean, I that's probably the only other thing I would mention. And um, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you all today, and I appreciate your platform and the work that you all are doing. And so, it's just an honor for me to just be on today. Mm. Aww, thank well, you. Yeah, I know we yes. know we both were excited to have you on too. Yeah, absolutely. And for our listeners, they um, probably wouldn't know this, but that you and I got to connect back in 2019. I think it was mm-hmm. in the summer where I got to come up and hang out at SAMHSA for. Um, a couple of days or so. And um, just to get to meet you in person was just such a gift. And this is this is long overdue, but I really am <laughs> glad that we have you here on the show today. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, just I guess to start, I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, you know, your backstory a little bit about what, you know, kind of what got you into mental health and um, the work that you're doing around suicide prevention and just the the heartbeat behind this work that you're doing. Yeah, for 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 sure. So, um, I mean, it's hard to even remember where to start <laughs> with this, but mm. um, essentially um, I originally had, you know, I I think kind of growing up in Baltimore, really kind of being exposed to to different things. Baltimore is a beautiful, amazing city, Um, definitely gets a lot of um, bad publicity, but it's a really amazing city with a lot of um, amazing people in it. But it has its struggles, just like many major metropolitan cities in the in the mm-hmm. country. And so kind of growing up, you know, you're exposed to different things and see um, different things. And so I think one of the things that, um, you know, just growing up in the city, it was, was just one of the things that got me into wanting to learn about mental health. And, you know, but when I when I went to college, I was more so like, you know, they, they tell you to go to mental health. You're not going to 
be able to make any money, you got to get like 85 degrees and all this stuff. And so <laughs> I originally went in for um, for engineering. I was an engineering major all for one semester. Oh, wow. Um, huh. Yeah, I was I was good at math. But when I got into the, the classes, I was like, I can't see me doing this for the rest of my life. So I went back to my passion and I said, you know, I'm going to, you know, go into mental health. Like, I'm just going to go into it and see how it goes. And I fell in love. I went to the amazing Morgan State University at HBCU here in, in Baltimore, and it, it changed my life. And I really got to understand that this was really my passion and it was really my calling. Like it was something that mm. I felt like I was supposed to do. Like I was born to kind of get into this work. And so I was able to, you know, really understand how to do this kind of work in in community. Uh, violence prevention was a big piece of my interest, was the mental health impacts of, you know, being exposed to violence, witnessing violence, um, especially on the community level. And so I went there and then um, went to Johns Hopkins um, School of Public Health really to kind of get, I, I, I knew at a certain point I didn't want to be a therapist. I didn't want to be a mental health clinician. And so I was thinking about how to, do mental health in a different way. And so public health kind of gave me that opportunity. And huh. my concentration was mental health um, at Hopkins, but my degree is in health science. And so as as a part of that, I really wanted to do community uh, mental health works, particularly around exposure to violence. And so there was a position at the state after I got my master's, which was director of suicide and violence prevention at the state of Maryland. And so and there I was like, oh, okay, great. Like there's a the violence prevention piece. Like I'll get to be able to work on that. And so I got hired and the position was vastly suicide prevention. It was, mm. that was really the the mm. big piece of it. I was managing a SAMHSA grant at the time. Um, our Garrett Lee Smith Youth State Tribal Suicide Prevention Program. Um, I was managing that and I really got into it. And when I started to understand the disparities in suicide prevention, some of the the nuance of it, like more of what you kind of, you know, less of what you kind of hear in in public and where some of the myths lie. Like I really got to dig and sit with the data and work in community and, you know, go talk to families who have been impacted and, and really understanding this. It really, you know, kind of changed my outlook. And I was like, I think this is a part of my my calling also. And so, you know, I got to do so much community work and really get into this field. But um, it's I definitely feel like it's my passion. It's it's changed my life. And I never thought I would be going into suicide prevention. But now I'm nine years strong working in the suicide prevention field. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love this. Actually, I had a bonus question about this towards the end, but I'm, I'm going to pull it all the way to here, right? Because <laughs> the idea you've tw you tweeted a, a couple weeks back about how we need more public health involved in things like suicide mm -hmm. prevention. And I think this show and obviously lots of conversations, but I'll speak at least to this show. Lots of times we speak to things on kind of an individualized basis in terms of mm -hmm. how do we help individual people sitting in front of us, things like that, which obviously is an important conversation. But what does the kind of the the bigger picture, like public health side, what kind, what types of things maybe does that allow you uh, to, to see or conversations to have in terms of how we help kind of shape communities? Can you speak to some of like what's different about that type of looking at things as opposed to, uh, you know, a clinician or someone kind of doing like, you know, individual kind mm -hmm. of work? Yeah, for, for sure. Like, the, the public health piece 
is is like so fascinating to me, right? Like when it comes to mental health and suicide prevention, just because, you know, there are we we have a ton of factors on the individual level and things that, you know, impact us about the way we, you know, handle disappointments and, you know, difficult moments and what are our coping strategies and, you know, what do we have in our individual like mental health toolbox to you know, get through this, you know, trying time or this difficult situation and, you know, how are these things impacting us? But there are so many other things outside of that that impact us, especially on a community level, on a systemic level. And those things matter. We can't talk about some of the individual challenges unless we really take into account, like, what's happening on a broader level. And I think, what public health allows us to do is to look at some of the systemic issues, look at some of the issues happening in our community and build solutions that are capturing, um, you know, a large number of people. Like even looking at, at suicide data, like, you know, housing and housing laws are a big piece of that. Right. Like so when housing laws change in a specific city or, you know, affordable housing programs and all of those things, when people have access to housing, We've seen decreases in suicidal ideation and attempts in communities, right? Like, you know, when we, you know, capture those things and see those things, it matters how people are able to get jobs and what level of, you know, gainful employment is out there. Even when we get down to discussions about the the minimum wage and all those things impact suicidal ideation and impacts, you know, people in specific communities. And so, um, even down to transportation, like how do you even get yeah. access to mental health services, right? Like, you know, if a town isn't really set up to get people from one place to another unless they have a vehicle. So what does that mean for people who don't have the the income yeah. for a vehicle or have um, the credit to, to get those? Like, how do we facilitate transportation to, to quality services um, for, for people and folks? And those are yeah. public health issues, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so... Um, I love looking at things from that perspective because it can start to, you can't do the complete picture of what's going on with an individual unless you kind of pull back a little bit and take a look at the full picture of what's happening. Yeah. Yep. No, I I wholeheartedly agree. And in fact, as you're talking, I'm like, Brandon, how do we get you in social work? Because you are just speaking <laughs> the social work language right now, um, like recognizing, you know, the person within their environment and, mm-hmm. you know, those access to services and to resources and like how they are just all interconnected with one another. Like we cannot look mm-hmm. at any of these things in silos. And so... I'm just really appreciative. I just, my social work heart is really loving everything <laughs> you're saying. And I'm so glad that you're in um, public health because, you know, that lens is just so, um, it's just so important. So uh, the way sure. that you're elevating it and really highlighting so many specific examples too, is just, yeah, I, I really, gosh, I appreciate your voice so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I love these these conversations. And I, I've had other people in social work, uh, you know, say the same thing. Like that's, you know, the training and things that, that mm-hmm. they have. And I think it's important for all, you know, all three of us really to kind of like work together, like the three fields yeah. of public health, social work and mental health. Yeah. yeah. We, we have to be at the table together, you know, to really have long lasting changes for, for people in communities. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah I love I that. totally agree. So you're, as I mentioned, you're the the creator of the Black Mental Wellness Lounge on YouTube. We'll obviously link mm-hmm. to that for, for folks to check out. Um, but your bio also mentioned some specific focus areas uh, specific to the Black community. Can you talk a bit about why those specific conversations are important, right? Like what are the, the potential major differences when discussing uh, Black mental health as compared to general mental health conversations? Mm-hmm. What do we miss when we have just kind of overarching, vague conversations about mental health? Yeah, um, I, I think in a, a field like suicide prevention, you know, when I got into it, uh, which is nine years ago, which is crazy to say that. Every time I say it, it's bonkers. But <laughs> nine years ago, <laughs> yeah, you know, when I was, you know, when I say a babe in the field, like I, I really came into it knowing just kind of the general things that I think everybody else knows that, you know, it's an issue. It's one that people don't like to talk about. It primarily impacts, you know, white individuals and communities, males, middle age, and, you know, it's a big issue around firearms. That's pretty much kind of what I knew, like, Mm -hmm. before I kind of really got into that position. And, you know, I I just studied and studied and studied. And as, as a part of that, like, as I was in the position at the state, like, there was so much community work as a part of it. I was speaking at schools. I was speaking at churches. I was speaking at community groups. Like, I was you know, really going out into the field. And so like, you know, I'm pulling in and talking to people and, you know, I, I know you all are engrossed in, um, you know, all sorts of things. And I know how you've done extensive research in these, mm. um, on these things. And so, you know, like about this, you know, about the qualitative data side, right? Like you mm-hmm. have the numbers, yeah. but we're getting into the community. And so like, as I'm like learning and talking to people, I'm understanding that this is an issue that's impacting so many more people and in different ways. And so I think Mm -hmm. generally when we talk about suicide prevention, if we're not going into some of the nuanced data, I think, you know, if we're just looking at the crude numbers, we're we're going to only look at one group. You know, we're only going to be Mm -hmm. focused on, you know, middle-aged white Americans. But if we're, if we're not dissecting that data and I think, Going into the data, you understand the the issue and the prevalence around American Indian Alaska natives that that suicide presents in this country, and you know you can start to look at some of the rates and things that we've seen in the African American community for for so long. Like we had a um, the suicide rate of young African American children between the ages of five and twelve had doubled in like oh a thirteen gosh. year span, <sighs> right? Like it doubled and like, you know, me putting on, you know, my public health hat, I'm like, how, right? You know, like we're looking at, we're supposed to look at trends, right? Like not just the crew numbers. So we're like, I'm like, how does this happen? And so I'm looking at it and it's because the the field wasn't focused on the trends and there were specific groups that people felt, you know, suicide historically doesn't impact African-American community the same way. Therefore, it's not an issue. But that's not that's not true, right? If we're not paying attention yeah. to the trends and what's happening over time, then we're missing some things. And I, I really do feel like a lot of that trend changing without the overall field really knowing was a, a lack of focus on this community and also not also paying attention to other researchers of color who were pointing out mm. this issue, but just yeah. weren't being heard, right? And, and yeah. so I think it requires us to you know, pull back and expand our horizons to really 
um, look at where the uh, the trends are going because we've seen some um, some really difficult trends recently. You know that one I just mentioned, looking at the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance Survey in terms of self-report suicide attempts in adolescence, African Americans are reporting the highest rate of um, suicide attempts between the mm-hmm. ages of thirteen to seventeen at this point, and that's increased significantly over the last 10 years. And also, you know, there was a big thing, 2020 data came out at the end of last year, CDC put it out, and there was a decrease in suicides in the country, which was a great thing. Everybody was, you know, really excited. It had been a long time since we had seen a decrease in suicides in this country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously not a good thing, but because of the pandemic, it actually dropped out of the top 10 for for mm. deaths in this in this country. And so, you know, again, it was it was a great thing to see that. However, again, it took yeah. a deeper dive to us to look into the data. And what we saw was there was a, a significant decrease in white Americans and Asian Americans and their suicide rate. Um, but we saw increases in the African American community, American Indian Alaska Native, and Hispanic individuals. So oh, gosh. You know, again, it's like, you know, if we if we are only looking at the big picture and not taking a deeper dive into the data and really practicing some data equity, then we miss these things and these opportunities for prevention strategies, targeted prevention strategies and intervention strategies. And we're also, you know, building things that don't work for everyone. Like we're doing a lot of universal work. But if we don't have everybody at the table in their specific experiences and how they how the conversation is even first in that community, how people are seeing it, what are some of the issues, particularly in those communities, we're missing those things. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we're having more conversations there. And I think, you know, now we're able to have conversations about what specifically work in these communities. Yeah. yeah, man, that's good. I I really appreciate, I mean, as a researcher, the way that you so eloquently like explained how, you know, we we really do a disservice when we take this massive data set, but that there's an overwhelming proportion of that data set that identifies with a certain demographic or characteristic Mm -hmm. and then generalize it to everyone without doing some of those deep dives that you were talking about and really getting at some of the nuance of, okay, well, we can report like, you know, kind of a a general summary, you know, once we look at kind of across it all, but that does not generalize to Mm -hmm. these individual groups. And so the importance of looking at certain demographics, whether it is, you know, race and ethnicity and gender and um, age and, you know, region, but those details, they really matter. Like they really, really matter. And we don't, we don't talk about that as often as I think we should and need to um, so that we can really honor the data well, because, Mm -hmm. you know, when you have individuals who are like, no, 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 I'm not getting better. And then the report comes out and it's like, look, we're doing great. (laughs) Right. Right. That really, I mean, it's, (laughs) it's kind of harmful to those, you know, those groups or individuals or, you know, I don't know. I just think that nuance is important. And I really appreciate how you kind of unpacked that, Brandon. That's good. Yeah, I, I think it 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 is. And I and I think the the field, you know, um, you know, I, I say this often and 
you know, anybody that follows me on Twitter knows I can be a little critical of the field sometimes, <laughs> but I, I do feel... <laughs> I feel like you are, like, gently critical. Like, I don't feel yeah. like you are, like, you know, just bashing up, you know, like, cra- like you are you are appropriately critical. I think it's good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I'm glad it comes Loving, out that way. <laughs> lovingly critical. How's that? We'll use that phrase. Yes. I, I like that because it comes from a place of caring, right? I like know, I care. I know it does. Yeah. You know, so deeply about this this field. And, you know, and, and that's one of the things that I, I mentioned a lot when I talk is, you know, as, you know, Robert, like you pulled that tweet, like I really do, you know, I say that a lot because I want the field and I want the clinicians in the field and the researchers in the field to really embrace what public health can bring to the the field and teasing apart the data and looking at these things. And it, it, it does, it does matter because I think we can build, you know, building things that, that work for the community matters. The, the subject, I mean, the evidence-based practices that we have specifically in suicide prevention for the African-American community is very, very limited. At, at this point, as we define mm-hmm. evidence-based practices, I'm using air quotes, <laughs> but evidence-based practices is, mm-hmm. it just isn't um, enough. And a lot of it has just come from a number of different things. But for a long time, researchers looking into you know suicide in the Black community weren't being funded because it was seen so universally as not an issue that this mm. community doesn't experience this because the crew numbers are so low. But, you know, as we've gone over time and we've watched these, the numbers have gone up, the rates have gone up. And now I feel like we're not as prepared as we would be just because um, there just hasn't mm-hmm. been an attention here. And, and I'm, yeah. I'm very, very thankful that we're starting to, to shift this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So I think a lot of people listening, right? And I know this is going to be a huge question that I'm really kind of asking real quick, but a lot of people <laughs> listening might be saying, okay as someone who studies this kind of from a public health lens, things like that, do we have any idea about those differences in terms of, you know, okay, how come uh, in, you know, from 2019 to 2020, uh, the the overall rate, particularly, you know, obviously most specifically among uh, white Americans decreased, mm-hmm. but, you know, you're talking about the the suicide rates of uh, for black youth increasing, you know, steadily over, over two decades now, right? Mm-hmm. Do we have any idea of like what, what's happening there? I mean, and again, I know that's a huge question that, that we could sure. probably have a whole, a whole conversation on, but any, any thoughts there? Yeah. Um, I, I definitely have some, some thoughts and a, a lot of this is based on, you know, the work that I've done and in, in looking at the data and talking to other, you know, experts in the, the field about this. I'll put out the disclaimer that this may not necessarily represent the views of SAMHSA in case they're listening. <laughs> but, mm. um, but honestly, I, I assume I would they say are. Yeah, they probably are. And so the 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 piece about this, I think that's that's so important to to understand is really this issue around like the social determinants of health, right? So, like mm-hmm. as we're looking at this bigger picture and looking at the things that influences you know, health kind of in, in the broad sense, like those social determinants of health, like those things around us where we, you know, interact with in our workplace in terms of where, how our neighborhoods look, um, where, what the schools look like and, you know, the, the built environment. You know, I talked about transportation and access to quality services. Um, I think that there are a number of things there, particularly in 2020, that really kind of stood out. So obviously we had this pandemic, and everybody in some way is impacted by the pandemic. 
But when we really take a deep dive into the inequities of it, Black businesses closed because of the pandemic at a disproportionate rate. Um, economic mm-hmm. burdens were felt more so by communities of color than than other communities. There were more economic hardship reported and unemployment reported by the African-American community as a part of the pandemic. So we're like looking at some of these things as well. And you kind of figure out like, because we have these inequities, like who's in the position to adjust to something like a pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even, you know, disproportionately, there were so many African-American community was hit really, really hard, especially in the beginning of the pandemic by COVID. And so you're talking about widespread grief and loss, the financial hardships that comes from that also. Mm-hmm. And on top of all this, there was George Floyd. Um, that incident yeah. mm-hmm. took place. Mm-hmm. Ahmaud Aubrey took place. Breonna Taylor took place all at like the same time as we're dealing with a global pandemic that's impacting yeah. communities of color in a very, very difficult way. So when you put all these together, it was it was a very hard year. And, you know, and many people will say like, well, the pandemic impacted everybody, obviously. But we also know, again, if we don't take mm-hmm. a deeper dive into the data and, you know, we're, we're going to miss these things. And so I think it was it really kind of put this attention on inequities across so many different places, so many different fields, um, you know, from healthcare, access to healthcare, to, to grief and loss, to, um, you know, businesses and all of those things. And so it was a really, really heavy time. And I think understanding what racism and discrimination means to the African-American community um, is important. Even down to, there are studies that show that even microaggressions in the workplace um, has an increase, can increase suicidal ideation um, Mm. among African-American adults, right? Like we have empirical evidence that multiple studies that show that. And there was data that came out of the CDC that looked at, um, you know, when they were doing telephonic uh, screening for individuals at the CDC, they looked at there was a, a significant increase in African-American adults who were reporting depressive and anxiety symptoms a week after the George Floyd video had circulated online. Oh, wow. So like there are real impacts to these things that if we're not paying attention and listening, can kind of go under the radar. So we were dealing with those things at the same time. And I think if we don't have those conversations if we don't talk about those things and those impacts, um, then we're missing the mark. But I think that in particular, some of the disparities is really what drives some of the differences and why suicide prevention um, strategies, prevention and intervention have to really address some of those nuances that are found particularly um, in the African-American community. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. So when when we were talking about the the kind of huge amount of topics that you could talk with us about today, you mentioned the idea of, of mental health needs that the Black Church could address, right? And I know um, I'll I'll link to uh, one of the videos on your YouTube as well that was uh, mental health in the Black Church roundtable where you had some other folks talking about this. But um, what what role can uh, the the Black Church, maybe specifically, you know, in terms of this conversation, play in mm-hmm. impacting or influencing or addressing the the mental health and wellness of their communities. 
Yeah, um, for for sure. And yes, shameless plug, but I do encourage folks to check out that video. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Yeah. No, we will. We will. You don't need to do it. We will say folks need to go check it out. For sure. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate it. In in terms of the the black church, um, for so 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 long, the black church has been an institution of safety and support within our community. Even, you know, when you look and get into the conversations around um, the civil rights movement, the church is where a lot of our leaders met. It's where a lot of our leaders came from. Um, It's a place that supported and met the basic needs of the people, right? And as we talk about issues around mental health and suicide prevention, like we've talked about a lot of, um, you know, where some of the challenges stem from in our community is really around having basic needs met, right? And being Mm -hmm. able to kind of adjust for some of the disparities that we see um, in our our communities. And so for, for so long in terms of, you know, transportation, getting people to places to access services the Black church was doing um, in our communities, making sure that we had food pantries and that people were able to get to get meals and support in that way, that was coming from the Black church. And, mm-hmm. you know, making sure um, individuals had um, just even good information. There were so many, you know, seminars and, you know, kind of like not webinars back in the day, but just meetings and having people come and talk about how people can get access to programs that they may not have known about that could assist them. Like the Black church has been doing that for so long. And so because of their standing in the community and because of the prominence of so many of our leaders within the Black church and even just with within communities, like people knew that if they had something going on, even financial um, that they could go to the Black church. And I think we need them in position now to really help us, you know, kind of manage um, some of the things that we have going on in our community in terms of uh, mental health and wellness. I think first, one thing in particular is that the Black church can change the conversation around mental health in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it hasn't always been something that our community has focused on. And I tell people a lot of that has to do with, well, we had a lot of other stuff going on too, right? Like getting the right to vote, Mm -hmm. um, dealing with issues around uh, law enforcement and, you know, issues around, uh, you know, some of the other things that we've experienced in terms of inequities um, and and racism in the country, the the mental health piece of it, we haven't had to address um, because a lot of it was we were trying to get some of the other things that other people in society had. So we really didn't even have time to address mental health. Mm-hmm. We just had to kind of tough it out, be strong because there were, you know, other larger issues at play. And so as we're doing this, I think the conversation has started to to shift around, you know, we can't push for changes in these inequities if we're not okay. Right? Like in all these things and all these battles, yeah. do you have a toll? Right? Like th- this can be traumatic and even, you know, if I can speak freely, like even the the nationwide conversation right now about whether or not we can talk about issues of race within our schools, 
like that's heavy. Oh my gosh, yeah. Right, you know, yeah. like that's yep. That's that's heavy. I went to school and I'm a product of Baltimore City Public Schools. And, you know, people probably have a lot to say about Baltimore City Public Schools. But one thing that they made sure that we were able to do is that we knew our history. We knew the challenges that our people faced and we knew what that meant for us to have some of the privileges that we have today. It was it wasn't just a thing that we talked about in February. It was September through June. And and we knew about those. And so for us to be in a position now to have to fight for our kids to even know these things in school, that comes with a weight, right? Like that's heavy, right? Like that's that's a heavy yeah. thing for us to have to deal with. And so, you know, obviously to have the black church uh, being there to change the conversation, to say, it's okay for that to feel heavy. It's okay for this to... Um, to be something that we have to deal with. And we're all going through it. You know, so normalizing that conversation of, you know, we may have some issues around our mental health as we deal with these things. I think the Black church is in a great position to change that. And I'm so fortunate to know of so many Black churches who are changing these conversations. I mean, um, having conversations even around suicide prevention. And, you know, even if I can... Um, you know, really salute my pastor and first lady. Um, I attend Morningstar Baptist Church in uh, in Maryland, and my our first lady is a licensed clinician. We have a Christian counseling center that's connected to the church, and oh wow, we we have these conversations right like every first Tuesday of the month. It's called the Renaissance Center, and the Renaissance Center hosts a mental health talk for the church on different topics. And, wow. you know, we've addressed suicide prevention many times. I've been a panelist on different events. I mean, and it opens up the conversation. We had one event where we had so many parents come forward expressing suicidal ideation that their children had um, experienced oh, from gosh. ages ranges from six to 12, oh, right? Gosh. So like no. even opening that conversation allowed those parents to feel seen. And the parents were talking about, I didn't feel that this was something that other families dealt with until you all had this event. Like that's yeah. major, right? And so the, yeah. the more we can infiltrate our community with Black churches being the voices around this and also being able to connect people with culturally specific services, because we know in research that that you know we may have better outcomes in the therapeutic process if we are attached to therapists who can you know are either culturally competent or can express cultural humility during mm. the therapeutic process mm-hmm. like yep. to be able to build referral list even right like to say hey you know you're looking for someone we know good and well that this you know this office down the street like they're good we vetted them you know, go there. They're accepting new clients. Like mm-hmm. that takes some of the legwork um, out of this. And so I, I really, so many of our churches are doing this and I definitely want to express my thank you to each and every one of them because it really does change the narrative of a community when the church is the one driving the conversation around mental health. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. that is so good, Brandon. And just the that gratitude and that joy and the way that you're just like amplifying and celebrating what is being done is just something I, I really admire. Um, and the ways that you've articulated so many 
practical ways that that can be done, including in the mm-hmm. the um, the congregation that you're at. And I I just I love all of that so much. So mm-hmm. thank you for sharing all of that with us. One thing we really do love asking folks when they come on the show, knowing that, you know, you have poured so much of who you are into this work and it's evident in the way that, you know, just in, in all that you described and all that you shared with us today and all that, you know, Robert read in your fancy bio in the beginning. And <laughs> there's just so, so much that you have poured into this work. So I would love to hear, you know, what is your hope for this work as you continue mm-hmm. to go out and advocate and speak and support others around this topic or these topics that we've talked about today? That's a really good question. Well, thank you. No, I really... It's my my favorite question to ask in our interviews, to be very honest with you. So I can see why. I love love that question. I I think for me, my hope really is that this becomes a normal, everyday, easy to talk about conversation in our community. Like, I really want this to be something that we're able to talk about um, in, in terms of suicide um, and, and suicidal ideation, um, just because we know people are dealing with it. You know, I know people are struggling with it. And I, I really just hope that people in our community don't feel so alone um, with with this and, you know, know that there are supports and, and, and resources in our own community and that our community understands that this is an issue. Right. Like there are mm-hmm. programs and places and, and speakers and advocates and loss survivors and attempt survivors that look like them. Right. Because you may not necessarily see that in some of, you know, maybe some of the larger organizations that work on this. But but knowing that, you know, they can talk about it and, and share those things is is really important. Um, so I really do hope that people in our, in our community know that this is something that they're not alone with. And and I think for the larger field, my hope is that we can build better supports, prevention, intervention strategies around this issue, specifically around um, the African-American community. There's such a, just a lack of, you know, funding that has gone here, a lack of, you know, focus on the interventions for this specific community. Mm-hmm. So I just want the field to kind of, you know, open his eyes more to some of these, you know, some of these issues and some of these things that we know that impact our physical health are also impacting um, our mental health and well-being. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I just definitely want the field and it's gotten better. It's not where it needs to be. But if we can just have more conversations and conversations that aren't built out of tragedy, I will also say that mm. as well. You know, I'm a big, another mm. thing that you may see me mention on social media is that I, I really am, you know, focused on prevention. Like, I, I don't yeah. want to see, you know, obviously we've had a number. We've had about four high profile deaths by suicides by African-American adults in the past two weeks. It's yeah. it's definitely yeah, been about yeah. four. That's prompted a lot of some of the, you know, the articles and additional conversation around this. And unfortunately, that's what happens. Something like that will happen very publicly, and then there's a lot of talk about it for a couple of weeks, and then it just it just goes away as quick as it came. And mm. for me, I just want this to stay a conversation 
so we can be prepared for this and do more work so we don't have to talk about it around tragedy, that we can talk about our successes and the new things that are being built versus a conversation around this person just died by suicide. What are we not doing? Like, what are we doing yeah. wrong? Like, I want the conversation to shift from that to say, like, this is what we're building right now when things are quiet, when we're not seeing these things right here. We're just looking at the data knowing this is an issue and we're putting the energy into it. Like I hope for a time where I can look out into the field and see that versus the conversation only being amplified around tragedy. Mm, gosh, yeah. that's good. Gosh. Man. Well, we're so thankful for you and all the work that you're doing. Listeners, if you want to connect with Brandon, you can connect with him on Twitter at BranJJohnson1, or you can find the Black Mental Wellness Lounge on YouTube or on Instagram or Facebook. Obviously, we'll have links to all of those in the show notes. Mm -hmm. If you want to connect with Holly, you can do that at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at robertvore. Brandon, thank you so much for joining yeah. us today. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Um, I, I would just say, again, thank you uh, both for having me on. I, I love your platform and what you're doing and amplifying in, in these conversations. And for, for me, definitely check out the Black Mental Wellness Lounge. Been up for a year and a half now. We have about... I think it's at 40 videos up with a number wow. of um, different issues um, around mental health in the Black community. So definitely subscribe and, and share it to folks. Yeah. Definitely want people to know that that resource. And it's obviously it's a YouTube page, so it's free. So share, share <laughs> it to, uh, to, to anyone that you know that may be receptive of it. And again, you know, I, I think it just all starts even you know, for as much as we talk about prevention and intervention strategies and what we need to do on a larger scale, I think even to just being kind to people is really just where it starts. And, yeah. you know, being able to be empathetic and sit with people when whatever they're going through, whatever their pain may be, I think it's just where we start. And then everything else we do beyond that um, gets a little bit easier if we can just interact with people with kindness. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.